immediately the services have to change because as you know, as we're walking through staffing and space implications, the space has to change immediately for uh, social distancing reasons and for staff health and safety protection. Colleges and universities are trying to figure out how they can open safely in the fall. At the epicenter of this discussion are those sites where students are known to come into close contact. Dorms, gyms, bathrooms, dining halls, and of course, libraries. To discuss how one university library is managing this new normal, we have Julie Kane, Associate Professor and Head of Collection Services at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. Julie has held positions at Sweetbriar College, Stanford Law School, and Middlebury College, and is an active member of ALA. Her book reviews appear in Library Journal, and she's a columnist with college and undergraduate libraries. Julie has been working in academic libraries since the year 2000. Welcome, Julie. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. I am also pleased to welcome architect Jim Kovac. He's back with us, an architect at VMDO, a firm here in Charlottesville, Virginia. His work has included significant public and academic library projects, ALA presentations, and he has been a contributor to Library Journal. Jim co-founded the Charlottesville Community Design Center and has taught design studios here at the University of Virginia, his alma mater. Welcome, Jim. So glad to be back with you, Pam, and delighted to get to spend some time with my old friend, Julie Kane. Well, I understand you met at Sweetbriar College when VMDO was contracted to design renovation and addition uh, for the library there. Is that correct? That's right. It was uh, a really great uh, opportunity to work on a beautiful Ralph Adams Cram campus and a really gorgeous library and uh, met some very talented librarians. Well, I'm looking forward to a, a lively discussion today. Julie, you've been directly involved in the day-to-day operations since COVID-19 closed your library. I believe it was in March. Is that correct? It is, yeah. And uh, I'm assuming you're right in the center of discussions about reopening in the fall. Can you talk uh, about how closure unfolded, uh, how you had to react at that time, and what kind of impacts we can expect to see in operations in the fall? Sure. So it's an interesting discussion and it's, it's kind of fun to talk about the, when we talk about reopening, um, we're talking about reopening the physical building, but of course we've been working nonstop since being sent home. So although we're reopening the physical building, the services of course have been provided this entire time, but they just look different. So when we went home, there was of course a scramble to figure out what we were doing and how we were going to provide services. Um, and some people, of course, could not continue with their work as normal. So there are a few staff members who are sent home and would not be continuing work as normal because their work is rooted in the physical processing of materials. And that's really hard to deal with and a really difficult challenge for some folks who are used to coming into work every day and handling materials and suddenly to have no work at all to do is really hard. Um, and when you identify with that work and suddenly you're not allowed to come into the building, that's just very challenging. Well, I'm, I'm assuming also processing materials at that point became impossible. Is that correct? Absolutely. We um, immediately ceased, you know, touching anything. We immediately ceased 
ordering print materials, we immediately seized um, interlibrary loan um, across the state. So we just stopped all of that. Um, you stop loaning print materials, you stop handling print materials. And for a library, that's tough. <laughs> you know, that's just, that's a hard thing to, you know, adjust in your mind. That's kind of, you know, it's a major factor in what we do. Um, and we just switch immediately to all online operations. Um, and of course, we have so many resources that are already online. A lot of the um, work we had to do was in educating our faculty in what we have already um, adapting their curriculum. Our schedule is a little bit different than a lot of other uh, universities and colleges in the area. So we switched you know, towards the end of our winter term and then had another spring term to contend with, a four-week intensive term. Um, so we had a slight break in between for professors to, to ramp up and redesign courses that were going to be all online. But we had a sudden influx of requests for other online materials, a lot of streaming video content, a lot of eBooks, you know, coming in. So as they were just kind of pivoting to, to redesign courses and think of, okay, well, I had these, you know, print monographs I needed. Now I need to know if, if they have eBook materials that I can just substitute. Uh, there was a lot of kind of steep learning curves and just a dramatic influx of requests for electronic materials. And at the same time, of course, we have a, this crisis and this budget crisis in tandem. And of course, we have one electronic resources librarian who is handling all of this. And, you know, bless her, she's just working nonstop to handle these, these massive requests. There are many, many vendors who were wonderful and just flooded the market with tons of free electronic resources um, for either a limited period of time or you know, an extended period of time during the COVID semester. Some of them are really relevant to what we're doing. Some of them are, you know, we're free or not so free. Um, and we have to just like sift through all of these offers and see. W worth the price you were paying, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, some of them was like, oh, is this a hook to get us to pay once we're done? You know, at the same time, disseminate that information to our faculty was a challenge. And, you know, getting that information out to our liaison librarians and filter through and say, okay, these things will be relevant. These things are not. These things will will help. Um, we're handling all of that on the fly, doing that with the budgetary crisis and trying to also cancel resources while we're buying resources was just, you know, so much at once to deal with. Um, I felt really fortunate that we had a CFO who was really on top of um, anticipating the cuts that we would have to make almost immediately as soon as they um, refunded room and board to our students as, as they sent them home, saying this is the hit we're going to take from those refunds um, as long as students will be coming back in the fall and this is the cut your department will have to take so that we could anticipate and you know, make the cuts that we need to make to our collections. But we're really anticipating you know, a, a real increase in need for electronic resources to support a new reality. 
So supporting electronic resources while we're cutting and while we're adding all at once. And while the frontline librarians are going just as hard and switching to an online environment on their side, um, they instituted a um, online chat reference service. And also um, instead of a traditional, you know, showing up in courses and giving one-off instruction sessions, they're popping into people's courses online in Zoom sessions like this. Um, wow, that's a big, and, that's a big change. But, and, and you could say if there's an upside to all this, it's that there's an increased use of those electronic resources that have been historically, traditionally, totally unutilized. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And so it's, it's a kind of a balancing act in finding out, you know, which electronic resources we're using, we're making a lot more use of our usage statistics, and communicating a lot more with our faculty on that end. And it's, you know, it's a learning experience all around to find out, you know, what we have and what we can let go. And it's a hard learning curve, I think, for the vendors as they would normally, you know, give us a lot of really steep increases and in our, you know, annual subscriptions and we, we have to cut. So all this transition to greater uh, rel reliance on electronic um, resources this staffing reshuffling that has to occur because of the new functions that are uh, uh, demanded by the situation, um, there, there are probably space implications. And I'd like to move a little bit to those design issues because I know that you and Jim have worked in the past on uh, library design projects, first at Sweetbriar and I guess uh, now at, at Washington and Lee. So given your experience at these two institutions, how do you foresee academic library services changing in the future? And then let's talk a little bit about the space implications of that. Immediately, the services have to change because as, you know, as we're walking through staffing and space implications um, in our planning for coming back to work, the space has to change immediately for uh, social distancing reasons and for staff health and safety protection. One thing that has been on my mind, and I'm sure is on the mind of all the directors everywhere, is that that really changes the character of the building. The character of our building is really delineated by floor and by how social those floors are. And that is immediately lost. You know, you cannot have group gatherings. You cannot have, you know, students packed in. We're keeping people apart. And I think, you know, the implications are huge. And the services immediately change too. We're, you know, contactless checkout barriers at access points, a lot more, you know, staggered staffing. Um, so we're not seeing each other. Um, a lot more of us will be remote for, I don't know how long. It changes the entire dynamic of the building. And I'd be happy to know what Jim has to say about this. And I just wanted to comment, it's an irony, because libraries are supposed to, in this day and age, be the communal gathering place. Yeah, so yeah. It's actually running counter to what we've been transitioning towards. You know, I totally agree with um, Julia's assessment about the increased presence of technology and um, the media services that she's discussing. But um, I might turn it back to you, Julie, after I, I share this observation. It seems like as libraries rely 
more on bookable spaces, potentially like small group study rooms where you're able to kind of distribute users and track how the building is getting used. Um, I wonder if you worried that, you know, as there's more self-service activities that some of your populations might start slipping through the cracks a little bit. It seems like uh, in some of the reading I've been doing that first generation students are typically most pleased with library spaces, but maybe least satisfied with the services that the library provide. And I think that just indicates a little bit of a disconnect between their expectations and what libraries are able to, to provide. So just wondering if you have thoughts about how the different populations at your university might be impacted differently. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that the less we're there physically, the more we lose that connection and the opportunity to engage with those students and to find out where we're losing them. Um, so this, this hurts us a lot. This is just another problem that we have to find more creative ways to work around. Um, so I think getting through the initial emergency and being able to maintain our fundamental services is like the first hurdle. And then like everything else we need to, to, to get to all the communities we need to reach and to find out more creative ways to like solve our bigger problems is going to just take a lot more work and like digging deep and working with our other communities on campus. I, I heard a really interesting analogy lately that um, if the space within the library is the hardware of the library, it's really the social norms around the use of the library that's the software of the library. And it seems so much to me like you have to align the hardware and the software or the space with these new norms to really su succeed with any new service model. And I'm just so curious, it seems like there, none of us really have good answers yet as to what the landscape of the library looks like in the fall. But, uh, you know, some measure of the responsibility is really going to fall upon the shoulders of the, uh, the students that use the library to observe the, the measures that we need to put in place to manage a safe environment. So I think it's the, the service model is reliant so much uh, both on the side of the spaces and how you as a librarian manage them but then how responsible and aware of the student body is of just how important it is to follow these new these new norms to uh, make sure that that place is as safe as it can be. So lots of challenges going forward. I'm so interested to see what it looks like in the fall. And I, I'm assuming that you guys have decided that you, you will in fact be uh, opening in the fall and have a schedule somewhat in place, right? Yeah, the plan is to be on campus and we have, um... Uh, right now, there's a phased approach, at least for getting staffing in place to be ready for welcoming students back in the fall. All of that is with a caveat <laughs> that anything could change at any moment. But yeah, right now we're working through phase one of our staffing returning to campus. And so right now we have a few staff members in the library We're going very gingerly and very slowly in reopening the physical building and even that, um, by the time we get to, I think August 11th or something like that is the end of phase three, we will be only opened to faculty by appointment. And then 
by the time the law school is scheduled to open before the undergraduate university, by then we'll be open only by swipe card access. So we're not even planning to open the library to the broader community, which we normally would be. So we're still playing it conservatively safe. And, you know, masks will be required in the building. We're still keeping six foot distance with everyone. There are just lots of plans in place. There's so much planning going into trying to keep everyone as safe as possible. I think we're just, we don't have everything fully set yet, but we're just kind of doing the best we can and going as slowly as we can. I think it was Rahm Emanuel who said, don't ever let a good crisis go to waste. But I'm wondering, um, to Jim's question, what are the, the longer term implications in terms of your space and your services? That's a good question. I would be more worried if this only impacted libraries, because as you know, like anytime space goes unused on a campus, it's taken over, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a land grab. But since this has shut down all spaces on campus, I don't worry about that as much. I do worry more just about, really just more about the flavor of it, about the character of it. If it's not going to be a hub of campus anymore or for an extended period of time, then really what it becomes. I, I wonder, Julie, I've been thinking a little bit about this issue and it seems to me that um, you know, big concern is obviously maintaining equity in access to the library and its services uh, and spaces as your university reopens. But it seems like because so many students will be buying for so many uh, or so, so many fewer seats, I wonder if you feel like the library will have to become a bigger partner across the university so that you're working with other programs to be sure the whole community of learners can be accommodated. I, I guess essentially, if you're taking the density of the library as it had been, and you still have that same demand for the space, do you foresee a time at WNL where you're actually expanding the perimeter of the library beyond the walls of the library so that you're capitalizing on underused academic space somewhere else or lounge space and student housing. Like it seems like there's an opportunity ideally to fragment that great user space and allow it to move beyond the perimeter of the library. It's not as though you would physically own those spaces further afield, but you could potentially partner with other departments to manage it more holistically. That's interesting. And I've never heard anyone put it that way because the library is usually on the defensive about space. Libraries in general just have never had that mindset of expanding beyond their own boundaries. So that's super interesting. And I, I think it's hurting my brain as a, <laughs> as a concept. Like We don't do that. <laughs> we can't possibly. But that's really interesting. And I, I think I'd have to sleep on that and, and try to envision how that would work. There are a lot of places on campus where students have little hidey holes where they can study. I don't know that they have as many places where they're used to studying together as they have in the library. So I think finding those group spaces would be harder, but also you know, not applicable perhaps in this environment. So I'm not sure what we would be looking for. Well, there's another aspect to it. And Pam, you and I discussed a couple of weeks ago, the idea that in public libraries, there's some discussion about potentially trying to 
densify the collection or reduce the footprint of the collection in the building so that there's additional space for users. And I wanted to ask Julie if she felt that likelihood was equally strong in academic libraries, whether that means additional compact storage or additional offsite storage such that you would be freeing up square footage within Leyburn Library for more seats uh, at a greater distance from one another? I think if academic libraries haven't already done so, it's a good idea to think about the problem is going to be that, again, the budget problem, um, so, you know, schools aren't going to be looking for places to spend money. You know, the space issue is obviously a problem. I'm really relieved that we actually did just put in compact shelving. So we are freeing up some space, but, and I'm not sure that they're going to be looking to see that, you know, student space in libraries is that high of a priority. You talked a lot about technology, though, changing the way in which people are more and more accessing the information, you know, the the resources you have. So think about something like Zoom conferencing or, um, certainly a lot of the online distance learning uh, technologies that are available. Can the library in an academic setting perhaps take its lead from public libraries that are looking towards remote locations and remote services where you become less of the source of information, more the facilitator for information sharing? Uh, is that something that you could see in your future? It doesn't seem to me that it's going to cost a whole lot more. It's just going to be a reallocation of resources. What I'm thinking, for example, is in order to access resources, the ILS or whatever, obviously students can go online, but they're often on their mobile devices. Mm -hmm. Let's just start with that, which is not an easy sort of way of communicating with people, for example, via Zoom. Is it possible that the library can actually move some of its terminals elsewhere on campus and provide the same level of service elsewhere that it does in the library, but in a way that also enables, for example, group meetings so that people don't have to be in the same space, but they have the technology available to them to share as they did in the past. Any of our electronic resources that we provide are available to you know the students and faculty regardless of you know device or machine. They don't need to be you know tied to a, a machine in the library to use them. We've done away with all of that kind of. They don't need to be on a an OPAC or you know something sitting in the in the library, which is why you know teaching remotely, learning remotely has been fine. They can use they just they just log into their WNL account and they can access anything. So that's not been a problem. That's more of an issue for like community users. They cannot get access to our resources unless they're in the building. Regarding technology uh, in academic libraries, want to hear both of your thoughts about something that I've been hearing a lot more about, and that is the uh, uh, ability to provide bookable spaces for students as they begin to return. And so, Julie, I know I've, I've seen the great group study spaces that you all have. Um, A lot of universities are beginning to turn towards the kind of digital room signage panel that allows you to reserve spaces 
um, either in person in the library, or you can do that remotely on your on your device. But I, I also wonder if more universities won't begin to turn to this technology as a way to track students to understand uh, as the pandemic seems to ebb and flow. I wonder if those kinds of devices enhance our ability to understand who's in what space and with whom they're in that space. So that if there is a minor outbreak on campus, there is this um, tool at your disposal to get a little bit better understanding of who might have been exposed to a, a carrier. That's interesting. I haven't been part of any discussions about the room booking system. We do have room booking systems in place, but I haven't heard about using it for contact tracing as such. I know that part of our like back to work process involves, you know, essentially logging all of our contacts every day. And that's part of a, you know, a requirement for all staff heading back to work and not many details yet on what the structure is for those that logging yet, but we're assured that that will be in place. And I don't know if there are similar requirements for the students coming back, needing to, you know, provide a daily log for all of their contacts. I don't know if if the room booking system is part of that, but I can see how it could be easily used to to see where people have been. But the room booking system is is already in place, and I could see how that could easily be kind of tapped to use that. So listening to all this, Jim, and thinking ahead to your your next uh, academic library design project, how is this going to change what you do? Uh, that's such a good question, Pam. And if you can point me in the direction of a new client, I'd gladly uh, <laughs> answer that question alongside them. Um, I, I think it is going to be really challenging to understand what we all mean by distancing guidelines going forward. There are so many different takes on it, and it unfortunately is a little bit squishy. You know, yeah. are we talking about a six foot diameter safe zone? Uh, are we six feet apart? Uh, so, uh, you know, FEMA has outlined that 113 square foot per, per seat is the ideal square footage uh, allotment for each user, uh, which is a little bit more than a 10, 10 foot by 10 foot box. So that kind of data, that understanding of that information is going to be so important to the way spaces are laid out and how building programs uh, get established that I think we need a little bit more clarity about that. Definitely encourage your listeners to find the AIA's reoccupancy assessment tool online. I think there's some really good hints in there as to some very smart ways forward uh, regarding not only the reoccupancy of libraries, but of course, any uh, academic space uh, that you might be talking about. But I know VMDO is going to be working very closely with the AIA uh, and and has already uh, done so to try and ratify some smarter ways forward regarding space planning. So, you know, you and I talked about some short-term spatial adjustments that'll need to occur. And those are maybe last week's news, but there are some very basic things that we're gonna need to be folding into the discussion regarding sneeze guards and motion sensors and restrooms, hand-free water fountains. I honestly think though that the biggest change we're gonna see is a movement away from large group spaces, auditoria, theaters, large lecture spaces within libraries, and really towards recapitalizing those spaces as clusters of smaller spaces that would maybe accommodate 
two to five people as opposed to 30, upwards of 30. So I think the dynamic is going to shift a little bit and it's going to be a lot less about large gatherings and a lot more about more intimate settings. Um, and to Julie's concerns earlier, I too am a little concerned about what the library is going to look like in, in five years. But I also think this is a really good opportunity to study how to continue to make it the most welcoming building on campus, uh, whether that is through design detailing of furniture and, and finishes or just relationship of spaces to the overall connection to campus and landscape spaces beyond. I think uh, there are a lot of great opportunities and I'm just really excited to uh, work with Julie and others to try and envision what, what it all is going to look like. Thank you, Jim and Julie. This has been very interesting and obviously we have more questions than there are answers. Uh, and your answers are more questions than they are answers. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's because the times are, are changing quickly. And, and there are, as Julie, as you mentioned, so many budgetary implications to all these decisions, staffing implications. Mm -hmm. um, the human dimension of this is really quite significant. The fact is we're social creatures and that learning is not just an isolated experience, it's an interactive, uh, much more exciting when it's interactive and certainly I think more productive. So where we're headed is, is uncertain, but I can tell that uh, at least in the, in the short term, uh, you're prepared. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jim and, and Julie. Let's continue these conversations. Thank you so much. That sounds great, Pam. Thank you both for uh, uh, inviting me back. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advancing America's Libraries. If you have any topic requests, tweet us at Ivy Group or email contact at ivygroup.com.